Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Salah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 85, which along with Psalm 86 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, May the 27th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are um, moving towards Pentecost, not this weekend, but the following weekend um, is the day of Pentecost, and so... We're continuing to look, uh, as we did yesterday, at the prophecy of Ezekiel today in chapter 1, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. So remember, yesterday what had happened was is that Ezekiel had seen a vision. He had seen a vision of angels and heard a voice from above where he was speaking to him. And and we continue with that then. He's explaining what it looks like. Uh, like the appearance of the bow that's in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. And we've seen that in Revelation 4, we see this very similar kind of an image at the throne of God. And so it's it's the, the throne of God. The bow <clears throat> is more than just a rainbow, actually. The word for the bow uh, is the the word for a battle bow. And so when you see a rainbow, when, when Noah would have seen a rainbow or any of his descendants, then they would have seen that God had hung up his battle bow in the clouds because he had made a promise that he would never again destroy the earth in this way and wipe out um, humanity in, in the way of a flood. So the, that bow is here around the throne of God. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And this is all very, very similar to uh, John's reaction in the Revelation. So this voice is speaking to him, and he said to me, Son of man... (coughs) I send you to the people of Israel, the nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. And again and again and again, those are the, the particular accusations God makes against his people. What's really interesting is, is that those are the words that Moses um, spoke when he got angry with the people for demanding water. And, and he said he called them rebels. And it was then that he struck the rock after he was told to speak to the rock, and he was disqualified from leading the people into the land. So, Son of Man, I send to you the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. This is a long-standing problem. It's not something that just cropped up yesterday. It's been going on for a long time. Their fathers transgressed to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. In other words, what he's saying is, is that it's not just a sin of the past. No, it's the ones from today as well. Not punishing them for the sins of the Father. That's not what this is about. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for their rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. So one way or another, they're going to know. They may, they may completely refuse to hear you, in which they will. Um, but nonetheless, I sent a prophet, and they're not going to be able to deny the reality that I told them. And I gave him an opportunity to repent. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. He says, don't worry about them. Do not worry about them. I've got you. 
You know, this is this is not something they're not going to, no matter what threats they utter against you, they're not going to carry that out. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed by their looks, for they're a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they're a rebellious house. I mean, I don't know how much clearer God could have made this uh, about who these people are, who his nation has become. And we see it in full flower in demanding the crucifixion and death of Jesus. So this is one of the prophets, Ezekiel is, uh, who, like Isaiah, was told they're not going to hear you. Like Jeremiah was told they were not going to hear you. But they'll never be able to deny the fact that I sent a prophet to them. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. So don't be like them. I need you to be a different kind of person. God's bringing a charge against his people, but he needs a prophet. He needs somebody who's not like them to, to be his man on the ground in Jerusalem speaking for him. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Now, these same things are shown to John. This is exactly the same thing that happens, for instance, in John 10. But but John seeing when the lamb, looking like it was slain, takes the scroll from the hand of the one seated on the throne and then begins to open the seals of judgment, then you see the same thing. This, this is written on the front and on the back. And so there was, there was much there. And, and now, so he, he, he has shown these things and these are lamentation and mourning and woe. In other words, these are judgments that are going to be uh, undertaken against God's people by God himself. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. And it's exactly the thing John's told to do in, in uh, Revelation 10. But what he's told to do, the, the scroll that he is to swallow in this same way, it is also not to be revealed. He is, he is told not to tell what's in that particular part of the revelation. And Daniel is given the same kind of instruction not to eat a scroll, but to seal up a book and not reveal it. It was revealed only to them in those two cases. Here, though, what he is intended to do, what Ezekiel is intended to do, is eat this scroll, digest it, and then regurgitate it, essentially, to the people. But it's going to be filtered through the person of Isaiah. So it's, it's not dictation. He's not to read the scroll. He's, he's intended to internalize what's written on that scroll and then, and then to turn around and speak to the people about this thing. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give, give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. Because it, it does taste sweet. Judgment does taste sweet. When we've been persecuted, it tastes, it's sweet when we, we hear that God might do something against that person. We see that in the political um, sphere in America today. If you get on Twitter at all, what you see is, is that, that all anybody wants is the destruction of those people that, that are on the other side. And so the walls are always closing in on the person on the other side. And, and that's all we want. You know, both sides want the same thing. We want judgment. But the problem becomes that then we begin to see, well, wait a minute, that's going to fall on everybody, not just on the people who don't like me or the people I don't like. And and so it tastes sweet in the mouth. And then as you, you 
digest this as you come to grips with what all this means, then it begins to taste less sweet because it's going to fall on everybody. So it's, it's a, that's what's going on here. And John's given that same thing. And John says the same thing, that it, in his mouth it was sweet as honey. But once he digested it and, and, and came to grips with the full reality of what it meant, then it turned his stomach sour. And so that's exactly what Ezekiel is commanded to do here in this, in this particular point in his prophetic career. We move now from that to Luke 9, 28 to 36 in the gospel, and we're at transfiguration, which, which does also seem to come up relatively often in, in my world. <clears throat> it's about eight days after Jesus had said the things that, he, that we looked at yesterday. He took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, we don't know whether they knew that at the moment they saw them, that this is Moses and Elijah, or whether it became clear in the course of the conversation as they as they were there that that's who these two figures were. It's not like there would have been, you know, a whole lot of paintings on, like, that picture of Jesus that you see in so many houses. I've seen a so many times it's unbelievable over the course of my life. And then um, it's not that way. That's, that's not what they would have had here. They, they wouldn't have had a likeness and an image of Moses and Elijah uh, in their heads and on the walls of their homes. And so they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what they're speaking about is, is the crucifixion. They're talking to Jesus about that. Now, Peter, remember, had, had rebuked Jesus over the idea of that crucifixion and death. And, and here, you can see, and they see in here, Moses and Elijah speaking of this with Jesus. And, and both of them probably had one simple message for him, and that is, don't mess it up. I was going to say it a different way. But anyway, don't mess it up. Don't mess up at the last moment. You've run the race this far. Don't blow it, you know, because that's what both of them did. I mean, Moses led the people in the wilderness for we don't know how many years, but it was it was decades and decades. And only after the death of his sister Miriam does he blow it and and hits the rock instead of speaking to the rock as he had been told to do. And then is disqualified from leading the people into the land. And Elijah is disqualified from being the prophet to see the fall of Ahab and Jezebel because of his sin of abandoning the people. And abandoning the cause of God and going out into the wilderness alone, so so you can't uh, you can't separate yourself from the people, and that's what Moses did in that moment when he called them rebels. He he no longer identified with them because he identified completely with God. Because he says, "Must we do this? Really, you're bringing water out of the rock." No, you're doing what God told you to do so that he could bring water out of the rock. But but what happens sometimes is, and Elijah does the same thing when he says, I, even I am left. There's nobody left but me. I'm the only faithful person in Israel. And God tells him, no, you got it all wrong. I have many who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so it's the, the sin of separating themselves from the people to whom they had been sent. And, and aligning themselves completely and entirely with God against the people. And that's not the job of a prophet. The job of a prophet is to align with the people and present their case before the Lord to plead for their, uh, to intercede for the people in, in, in front of God, 
but to represent God faithfully to the people. And so they failed in that they both abandoned the people, and they aligned themselves with God and failed to see their own fallible humanity. And Jesus never does that in the prayer of, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, is, is his ultimate alignment with the people, and it makes him the prophet par excellence. And so that, that's the, the, they're probably encouraging him, don't blow it like we did. You know, and, and the greatest temptation Jesus is going to face all along the way is to do exactly that, to rebuke and, and separate himself from the people he was sent to because of their sin. No, that, that's not what the call was. The call was to align and to give life to those who, um, who, who he came to save. And the only way he can do that is persevering in that dual role representing God to the people and the people to God and pleading and interceding for them. And Jesus continues to do that. That's his ministry now until the coming again, is to intercede on behalf of sinful humanity, particularly those who, uh, who believe. And so that, that's the important role that Jesus has, has and, and fulfills to the end. And so you can, you can imagine that they're speaking of this and, and saying, you know, it's going to get harder it always does. It gets harder. And so the, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. I mean, these guys fall asleep every time Jesus prays, it sounds like, right? Because that's what happens in the garden as well. Couldn't, couldn't you wait with me an hour? But they became fully awake when they saw his glory in the two men who stood by him. Can you, you can just imagine this, right? I mean, you know what it's like to be startled into complete wakefulness in an instant. And that's exactly what these guys experienced. And, and you can imagine coming out of sleep like this and Peter doing exactly what he does as the men were parting from him. They were leaving anyway. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said and that knowing they're really implies that he doesn't understand what he was talking about. I mean, he's just saying the first thing that comes to his mind, and it's just like, hey, let's let's maintain this Kodak moment and preserve it for all time. Let's let's take let's let's spend some time together because this is so cool. It's unbelievable, right? So he's, he wants to build booths for him. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Bet they were. <laughs> and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Now, what Moses had told the people in Deuteronomy was is that there would, God would, in uh, later days, God would raise up a prophet like him and they were to listen to him. And then Elijah is seen by, by Israel as that prophet. The uh, Samaritans were still looking for that prophet because they didn't have those prophets. And that's the reason what she says that Moses said there would come another one. And he said, he's already come. And so it's, I'm, I who am seated with you and he. And so here we see this being listened to him. And, and that would hearken back to exactly what Moses had said, but it would also have pointed to Elijah. But what it would point to is that Jesus, the one who's been transfigured here, would be the one who is greater than these two who were there before. And so what, what the Lord's telling them is to say that there's further revelation coming here, and you've got to listen to my son. In other words, move past what you think you know and all the interpretive schemes that you have and and let go of that and listen to this one who is my son, my chosen one. I mean, God affirms and validates this idea right here that he, that Jesus is greater than. He's my son. 
He's God's son, not the son of man like Ezekiel was. No, he is God's son. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Because <clears throat> he told them not to, by the way. <laughs> uh, it's what it, we're told in Mark's gospel. And then in, in, the, um, in the epistle today, we're seeing the preeminence of Christ, and that's the whole point of the epistle of the Hebrews. Apparently, the community to which this is written had kind of hedged their bets. They had lost faith in the coming again of Jesus because it had been delayed longer than anybody expected it to be. And so now they've lost faith in that. They're not sure that Jesus is still the Messiah. Um, and so they've gone back and they've hedged their bets, and they're beginning to, to re-accept temple worship and offer sacrifices again. And so he, what, what the, the author of Hebrews is at pains to do is to point to Jesus as superior to anything else. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, passes through the, the, the veil to go into the Holy of Holies. But what this uh, writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus has done more than that. He passed through the heavens. He's speaking of the ascension. He's speaking of the fact that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he does something. He has a greater ministry. So he, let us hold fast our confession. Don't lose sight of this. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he became like us. He had to be fully human in order to be the atoning sacrifice. He had to be fully human and fully divine at the same time. Um, but, but the fully human part of him is important because it means that as a human, he passed through this life without sin. In, in spite of the fact that there were many temptations all along the way, he said, let's then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can be confident because of the resurrection. I mean, if Jesus were only crucified and were not resurrected from the dead, then we would have no confidence that it had any meaning for us. We would have no confidence that God had accepted his sacrifice. But, but we know that. And so then because we know that, and because we know that he sympathizes with us, we know his love for us, we can confidently approach the throne of grace because we already know we are loved. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So, so they represent the people to God. They come before the God and plead through the sacrifices. They plead that, that God would forgive the people. They're not denying the reality of the sinfulness of the people. They're saying, in spite of that sin, they've done everything you commanded them to do in order to make atonement for that sin, and therefore we implore you to forgive these people. And so there's a compassion they would have for the people, and, and that compassion is, is doubly uh, so in, in the case of these men, because he says he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he is himself beset with weakness. So you can't stand there in judgment of other people when you yourself have sin that needs atonement as well. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor upon himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, there were others who challenged that, who Dathan and Abiram, who came forward and wanted to be priests. And they said, hey, we're, we're no different or, or, or less than you. And these guys were Levites, which is not the same as the Aaronic priesthood. And so the, they step up and they want to step into that role. And then God says, all right, come on, out of your, 
uh, out of your tents, you rebels. And they stand out in front of their tents, and the ground opens up and swallows them up because they tried to take the honor upon themselves. When Moses tried to take the honor of the deliverer upon himself 40 years prior to when God commissions him to do that, then, then, then it goes badly. And so we always need to be careful about self-selection and self-choice in this. And so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. As he also said in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So in his earthly existence, he stepped into a role, and, and there's so 30 years elapse, and then, then suddenly Jesus is baptized, and the, and the voice comes from heaven that authenticates him. And now he can step into the role that, that had been designed for him since before the foundation of the world. And yet it, it, the time had not yet come. And when the time comes is when the Father says the time has come. And so there's no presumption on Jesus' part to that role. In fact, Paul says that he laid down equality with God is not something to be grasped. And so he, he laid that aside, that equality with God that he had had since the beginning of, of well, since before the beginning of anything. He laid that equality down in his life and, and only did what the Father commanded no presumption, no acting in independence. It's important that, that we know what our anointing is and we walk in that anointing, that we're bold to walk in it, as Ezekiel was told to be bold and walk in it and not to be rebellious. But we also have to be humble in walking in that anointing to know whether or not God's calling us to something at any given time.